I want to begin with the word inclusive. This is like a, a favorite buzzword of secular culture. This is this word that is so loaded, it means so many things to so many different people, and it's thrown around. And like our culture does, they take words that are neutral in meaning or can be innocuous and then put this loaded meaning underneath it. When they find out I'm a pastor, you can always tell where someone comes from by what they follow up with. Because I've had many people ask me, is your church inclusive? Now by that, I know what they mean. Do you affirm and support lifestyles and, and behaviors that we do? Basically, are you as obsessed with sex as we are? And this word inclusive has taken a, a meaning to mean that everything is the same, that everyone is exactly the same, and that we should not distinguish between good and bad, right and wrong. We should just include and love everyone. So, but when they say that to me, there's other things I want to say in my head, but I have to gently respond politely by saying, yes, we include everyone in our service because everyone is welcome. Everyone needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to know him and turn from their sins to him. So in that, we are all included in the message. So for us, the gospel is inclusive because the gospel includes every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel includes rich, poor. It includes young, old. It includes male, female. And yes, I say that we're in a culture where I have to actually qualify that. Yes, it includes everyone. There, our gospel is inclusive, no matter what the culture does to distort the word. Now, here's why I bring that up, because this is important for our text this morning. Because the gospel that is proclaimed in the scriptures, the good news that is seen from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22, is a gospel to the nations. The promises that we're going to see in the Old Testament, the promises we're going to see this morning and Psalm 65 were given to Israel, but they were never meant to remain with just Israel. God's covenant love was set on his people, but it wasn't enough. God himself says it wasn't enough. We're going to see a few of those passages in a moment. Because his love was never limited to Israel. It was even prophesied outside of Israel. Now, uh, for those of you who are in RBC and you guys are studying biblical theology, and I'm a big fan of biblical theology, this is going to be helpful. I want to show how God's love and his covenant love and faithfulness to the nations is seen all throughout Scripture. Now, when we were in John, I'm going to go through these quickly so they'll be up on the screen. When we were in John, we saw this in John chapter 10, the great chapter of Jesus being the shepherd of the sheep. And he says, I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. And this is what he says because he's speaking to Israel at this point. And I have other sheep, other, other than Israel, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. These are the words of Jesus. We also know, we should all know this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why is authority given to him? So he could give authority to his disciples. And he tells them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This gospel message came to Israel, but it was always meant to go out to the nations. But it didn't begin with Jesus' early ministry either. Jesus was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is what by, regarded by many as the gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, the great servant of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness, speaking to his servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, the servant of the Lord, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The servant of the Lord, who we would see the suffering servant in, in Isaiah 53, in, in Christ. But it's not just in chapter 42, and he goes a step further, what this light to the nations looks like in Isaiah 49. He says, it is too light a thing. So it's not enough that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel. You're my servant. You're going to raise up Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So there's a remnant here. This language predates Paul by several hundred years. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This was prophesied in Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ. This verse was what um, the apostles used in Acts to preach to the people. Acts 13. Acts 13, they're standing in front of Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews don't like this message because they're they are gritting their, their teeth against this gospel that would, one, condemn them in their self-righteousness, but also open themselves up to, uh, excuse me, open the gospel up to the Gentiles. Here's what it says, picking up in verse 47. For the Lord has so commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This command that we see in Isaiah is now given to the disciples. The disciples who are servants of the servant, it is spoken of of the servant of God, and them being united with Christ now become a servant of God. They share with the Son. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed eternal life believed. So Israel is the chosen people of God throughout the Old Testament. But now those appointed to chosen, or to, excuse me, to eternal life are the chosen of God in the New Testament. All throughout Scripture, we see that God has good news. First to Abraham, who he pulls out of paganism, and then he expands the nation of Israel. And then it expands to all the nations, which is why we opened our service with Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to highlight a few things before we get into our psalm this morning. Because you're going to see this come up in, in our psalm. So Ephesians 2, we read the whole section. I just want to bring a couple of things to your attention. Remember, this is, remember who we are. I don't know any, any of you in here are ethnically Jewish, but we are the Gentiles that are spoken of in this passage. Now, I don't know if you ever read the scriptures and realize this, that the God of Israel who pulled Abraham out of his father's land, the Ur of the Chaldees, he has brought us in. He has brought Gentiles in. He has made us spiritual Israel. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, guilty, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And we don't get this because this is not a debate in our time. We don't live with, with Jews who don't want us to be included. But this is a very real issue for those in the time of Paul. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants that God enacted with his people were to Israel, and we were strangers to them, having no hope without God in the world. This is going to be important for our psalm. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Picking up again in 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off 
and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Spirit of the Father. Spirit to the Father. Access, excuse me, access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what Christ did. Brought together Israel and the nations, the, the, the Gentiles and the Jews, making them one body in him, making us, through faith in Christ, members of the household of faith and citizens of an eternal kingdom. We didn't read this, but this brings us all together. Uh, if you were to summarize Ephesians, Ephesians is mysteries revealed. We see, we see many mysteries revealed. We see eternal blessings in Christ. We see the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles. We see the mystery of, of marriage pointing to Christ in the church. But look what he says about this mystery in chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, why does all that matter for our psalm? Now, this psalm is going to be praising the God of Israel. But there are little keys in this psalm. When we read through the psalm and we see all flesh, we're going to get to that, speaking to all nations, all peoples. When we, we see the ends of the earth and those who are at the farthest seas, those who dwell at the ends of the earth. J, or David is in Israel. He is in Jerusalem. They are praising God in his presence Standing before the tabernacle, the holy, the holy of holies. David, outside of himself, because this is not fulfilled in the days of David, is prophesying that the ends of the earth are going to come and worship this God. The ends of the earth are going to be reconciled to him. This gospel that we now know in its fullness had its seeds in David. And David is a king, but also, also speaks prophetically many, in many times. And so in Psalm 65, we're not just going to see that every nation, but all of creation praises him. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 65. Psalm 65, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. And you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one by who his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and you water it and you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. Praise is due to you, O God, in the highest heavens. Maker of heaven and earth, creator and sustainer of all things, 
Savior and Redeemer of all peoples. Supplier and provider in all seasons. You are a holy and righteous God. You show your grace to us lowly and far off. Gentiles apart from your promises. You have given your promises to us in Christ. You have brought us near to you. Brought us into your temple so we can behold your goodness and your holiness. We praise you for your salvation. You uphold the mountains with your mighty right hand. You calm the waters. You bring peace to the nations because you are sovereign over all things. We praise you for your power and glory. You are the God who brings rain in and out of season, who brings green things to grow out of the ground so that we may eat and be nourished. You care for your creation. You care for us. And we sing your praises along with all creation that you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise and I pray that you use this stammering servant this morning that I would be used for the sake of your name and your glory that your spirit would go before me in this time that work through me that as a body we would be enriched and built up in love that we would be grounded in truth and that we would praise you with every fiber of our being because you are worthy of our praise. We pray this in the name of our God, eternal Father, eternal Son, eternal Spirit, three in one. Amen. All right, so the setting of this psalm, Psalm 65, to the choir master of Psalm of, of David. It takes a little bit of research to kind of figure out what's going on here, but this is certainly a psalm of thanksgiving. This is Israel giving thanks for all the things that God has done in their life. And from some evidences within the psalm itself, it was probably for the occasion of the Feast of Booths. So it was one of the three major festivals where all of Israel comes to Jerusalem. This is the harvest celebration. This is where there are two main harvests, one in the fall, one in the spring. And this is where all of Israel would come together and celebrate a God who provides. Everyone would come together and reap the bounty and praise God who brings food to their table in abundance, more than they could ever eat. And it's important to note for this that where the Feast of Booths falls is a few days after the Day of Atonement. This is going to be important here because David's going to draw on this in verse 3. So here we have this celebratory song that all of Israel sings to the God who provides. And this teaches us a lot. So there's three major sections here. So I want to break these down. We're going to spend some time on what these mean and then what they mean for us. But it's going to teach us how Israel praised God and how we should praise God. We will praise him in verses 1 through 4 as the God of salvation. God who extends his grace to all peoples, to all nations but also to us, those who are far off as we look around the room and represent all nations, is the God not just of Israel, but all who he draws near. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to praise him as the God of sovereignty, whose, whose grace is over all things. He upholds nature and nations with his mighty right hand. And he is sovereign over all things, even every little area of our lives. We're going to praise him in verses 9 through 13 as the God of supply. The God who has grace over all seasons. He brings rain to bring crops to provide for his creation and for his people. 
And within these three categories, it covers all of the Christian life. Because we know the God of our salvation, we can see him as the God of sovereignty, the God of provision. And so hopefully as we walk through here and meditate on who God is and what he has done for us, it will cause us to praise him. Martin Luther says the entire Christian life ought to be a living doxology. Our very breath should be in praise and glory to God. Because there is nothing on this earth that is not worthy of his praise. And it should all point us to him. So first we're going to pick up verses 1 through 4, the God of salvation section. So his grace toward Israel. But the grace not just toward Israel. Because this section actually sets up everything that follows. And notice the repetition here. This flow throughout verse 1 through 4. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayers, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied in the goodness of your temple, the holiness of, or excuse me, the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. This is directed to God. This is David with his gaze fixed firmly on the God of the heavens who has dwelt among Israel. Praise is due to you. Why? Because of everything that follows. Praise is due to you. And the next 12 and a half verses are going to tell us why praise is due to this God. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. We've covered this before, but briefly, Zion, another word for the holy mountain that the temple sits on. It is a center of worship and political and cultural life in Jerusalem. That is where God dwells. That is where God's people go to be with the people of God and in the dwelling of God. We spent a lot of time on this feast when we were in John, but all of Israel would come and there'd be a week-long celebration. There was fire and there was, there was water and there was um, acrobatics and there was uh, musicians. It was a huge party. And the entire party, the entire festival was in praise of God all Come to you, God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. So it wasn't just praise, it was deeds. They would, they would vow to do deeds before God. I, because of who you are, because of what you have done, I will do this. When my crop comes, I will give you the first. When my first son is born, is handed it, I will dedicate him to you. These are vows before God. We will praise you. And our acts and in our, in our practice, and in our very lives. So praise is due to God. More about that God. Verse 2, oh, you who hear our prayer. You who hear. This is not a deaf and dumb God like the false gods of all the other nations. This is a God who hears prayers. This is an active, living God who hears his people. And this is a prayer. This is a praise song, but it is also a prayer. We're going to see that he's praying for, for peace in verses 5 through 8. He's going to pray for provision in verses 9 through 13 because of the salvation we see in verses 1 through 4. This is set up beautifully. And now, and you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. This is speaking of mankind. All types of peoples, all nations, all flesh will come to you. God, you are so great that right now it is just Israel. But I know that you are so good that it is not good enough that just Israel worship you. Everyone should worship you. 
This is why our discussion of inclusion in the introduction is important, because we have to understand that this is what David is getting at here. All flesh. I love what Acts 10 says. As Peter gets this epiphany, Peter sees the vision three times. And Peter, who's a good Jew, who will not eat anything unclean, who's been deprived of bacon his entire life, and now he sees this, this, this vision of all these creepy things and all the things he was not supposed to eat coming down out of heaven. And Jesus saying to him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And now he, get, and then he gets a call from, uh, what is it, the house of Cornelius? And um, maybe not. Uh, but, was it? Okay. I'm trying to pull off the top of my head. Um, so when, the, when he preaches the gospel, they respond, they receive the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Every one of us should say amen. Because apart from a God who's done that, we have no hope. All flesh. And why do all flesh come? Verse 3, when iniquity shall prevail against me, my sin is mine, is my own, I am guilty, you atone for our transgressions. All flesh come for personal and corporate restoration. All flesh come to the God, the only God who can restore them. Here's a problem. We're depraved. My sins, my iniquities, they, they prevail against me. If it was between me and sin, they'd win every time. But you... There's a solution. You atone for them. We know that atonement is a covering for sin. It covers the the sin themselves, but it also covers the consequences for those sins. The atonement was essential. The atonement happened a few days ago, a few days before in the Feast of Booths. And so it's, it's recent in David's memory. You atone. This is why we come before you, because you atone. And because you atone, then we can celebrate the harvest. Then we can praise you for your provision. But atonement is needed because sins prevail against us and blood must be shed. That's why sacrifices were necessary. And they were atoned through the sacrifice of animals. But we know for us that we've been atoned by the shed blood of Christ. That the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who came for the sins of the world, and when His blood is applied to you, You are atoned now and forevermore. And that is a reconciliation that David and Israel could only dream of because next year they'd have to do the same thing. But this is important to note. Because if you pay attention, who normally does the atonement? Who offers the atonement? Now, the high priest would typically take the the atonement offering once every year for the entire nation. But who does the atoning here? When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. This is not the normal Israelite practice, but David knows if there's true atonement, it must come from the Lord. And we know that the true and final atonement came through our Lord, who took on flesh for us and became the sacrifice that was required for us to be reconciled to God. Otherwise, our sins would still prevail against us. Our high priest offered our atonement, and David prophetically is looking forward to what Christ would do one day. And then he speaks of the blessing for those who are atoned. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Atonement, God choosing and God bringing near. You cannot separate these things. 
He's recognizing that you must be chosen by God. You must be brought forth by God to be atoned. God is not atoning people by accident. He's not atoning people outside of his sovereign plan. Blessed are you, the one he atones for, he chooses and brings near. We see this throughout all the scriptures. We spent time in this Deuteronomy 7. He said, Israel, I chose you. Not because you were special, not because you were better, not because you were larger, but because I love you. Because I set my covenant love on you and I made you mine. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, I chose you. I made you mine. And I have others. The Father is drawing to himself. And all throughout Paul, especially Romans 9, we see that he chooses. Before doing good or evil, it is God's will throughout eternity that he would know each one of us. That if you are indeed in Christ Jesus, he knew you before all of your sins and in spite of all of your sins. Not because you would do something that would eventually please him, but because he pleased himself to set his love on us. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Get nerdy for a moment. I'm not going to spend too much time in the Hebrew, but this word bring near, it's the same word for approach. But the way that it is used here, the form that is used here, is mean, it, it means to approach by being caused to go. So even when we approach him, it is because he brings us near. He causes us to approach him. Because he has chosen us, he stirs within us and directs our thoughts and our hearts and our actions that we may approach him. That is how he brings us to him. This is incredible. Jonathan and I were talking about this yesterday. We love how you could read the Old Testament and it's like you're, you're, you're reading Paul. It's almost like the same Spirit was speaking to both of them and writing through both of them. Such amazing coincidence. Blessed is the one you chose and bring, you choose and bring near. Why are they chosen and why are they brought near to dwell in his courts? This is the highest blessing that the God of the universe would ask you to dwell with him, that he would bring you closer to be in his presence, to dwell in his courts, among his people and among his praise. If you were in the church in the 90s, you know the song, Better is One Day in Your Courts. It comes from Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be the lowest of the low. I would rather clean toilets in the house of God, in the courts of our God, than to sit on the throne of a wicked nation. This is the sense of it, because God's presence is better than all else. Those who he atoned for, those he saves and he draws near to himself, they dwell in his courts. For what? To be satisfied. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. God has sent his son to atone for us to bring us near, to bring us into his presence that we may be satisfied, that we may behold the goodness of his house, the holiness of his temple. It's this beautiful picture of our God who is holy and good. But what we don't realize is that these are communicable attributes. If you don't know what that means, these are attributes of God that he communicates to us, that he gives to us. Our God is good and holy, but our God is 
dwells or brings us to dwell with him so that he can share his goodness and holiness. Be holy as I am holy, because I have atoned for you, declared you righteous, given you my holiness. Be good, do good works, because I am a good God, and I have put my spirit within you who gives you the ability to do good works. So us dwelling with God also gives us a share in his goodness and in his holiness. This is a beautiful picture of restoration. Not just forgiveness of sins, but given a new nature, one of goodness and righteousness. And so this is what we see in these first four verses. That the God of Israel, who made a covenant with Israel, said that it was too light of a thing to save just Israel. This complete picture of salvation, atonement, election, and restoration, and this giving of of, of holiness is beautiful in verses 1 through 4. He set his love on us. He took on flesh and went to a cross to atone for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. And David, hundreds of years before, in the Spirit, is praising God, not even knowing what's, not even knowing what's coming out of his mouth. But we see perfectly what was dim in those days. We see clearly through the revelation of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. And this God is a God who hears. He hears our prayers because we are his We stand in his presence because he has made his home with us. Now, if we understand what God has done for us, if we understand the lengths and the depths of our salvation, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about what that means? That by, by your very birth, you are apart from him. You're dead in, in your sin. You have no hope in and of yourself. And God brings you near. God brings you into his house calls you son, gives you an inheritance. This is the gospel. This is the gospel in the words of David, in, the, in a psalm of praise as it should be. Section number one. Section number two, five, verses five through eight, the God of sovereignty, where his gracious power sustains and stabilizes all things. Verse five. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Praise for his awesome deeds because he answers prayers. He delivers his people. His awesome deeds we've seen all throughout the book of Deuteronomy in our study. God tells them again and again and again, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who by my mighty right hand have sustained you. I'm the God who delivers. I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who restores. And they praise him for that. His works of creation and salvation are done in righteousness. By awesome deeds, you answer with righteousness. This is why we sing, and we're very particular about what we sing, for who God is and what he has done. Our God of awesome deeds, our God of awesome redemption and restoration. And we should be a people who praise God as Israel did all throughout the year, all throughout the week, because of who our God is and what we know about him. And we should address him as they do. O God of our salvation. Sing to O God of our salvation. But not just us. I love how David understands this. O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth. And the farthest seas. It's not just us. You're you're everyone's hope. There is no one who could be too far from you. No one on, on the furthest sea. No one at the ends of the earth. No one is outside of your power. No one is outside of the reach of your grace. You are our God, our salvation, and the hope of the nations. 
And then he goes on. Okay, you want to hear more about this God? Oh, God, our salvation. He can't stop there. The one who by his might established the mountains, being girded, or by, by his strength established the nations, being girded with might. So this is more about God's awesome deeds. God, the God of creation, he creates and sustains all things. By his strength, he established the mountains. He's got strength to create. In, in the Bible, there is nothing more majestic, more, nothing more immovable than a mountain. Our God created them. Our God, by his strength, created those mountains. And not just created them, he girds them with his might. Gird means to be held together. Our God creates and sustains all things. You know those big mountains? Our God is holding them together. The, the rocks don't fall down and crush us because our God is so strong that the mountains will not be moved without his say-so. You ever think about that? I know we don't have any mountains here and we're really missing out, but do you ever see mountains? My God holds those together. You ever see trees that cover us with shade and leaves? My God covers me with this beautiful greenery. You ever see flowers that come up and bloom? My God is a God who creates in beauty. This is what the psalmist is saying here. This is my sovereign God whose power is over all things. Amen. Verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Not just power to create, but power over creation. He's not just the God who puts things into place and the, the, not the God of deism who takes his hands off and hopes that everything keeps spinning. He's the God who has power over all things. Power to bring order. What is more mightier than the mountains? Nothing on this planet. And what is more wild than roaring waves and people. This is what he's saying here. My God who's powerful enough to establish the mountain, he can still the seas. He can still the roaring of the waves, and he can still the roaring of the peoples. My God brings peace to nature and the nations. And this is important for us to remember. When people freak out about hurricanes, it's not outside of God's hands. He stills the raging seas. People freak out about people. In our culture, that's how you could describe many people. They're like roaring waves. They feel like they're going to keep crashing, like they're completely out of control. But our God stills them with his voice. And Jesus showed his nature when he walked on water and he, and, and he stilled the raging seas. I'm the same God that David was praising. I'm the same God that David looked to. And David is looking to this God. And why does this God create? Why is this God sustain? Why does he keep everything under his power? So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. This is God's purpose. I do all these things I create, I maintain, so that the ends of the earth will know who I am. So that they will stand in awe. So that when they know that I am the living God, their jaws will drop to the floor. And see for the first time that my only hope is him. And that because the mountains don't fall into the sea because of him. In fact, that the world continues to spin is because of him. The fact that hurricanes don't destroy every one of us every time they come is because of him. The reason because that, that wicked nations don't destroy everyone who disagrees with them is because of him. All nations, the ends of the earth will see his signs. And this is a beautiful picture here. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The entire day shouts for joy. 
But what he's really saying here is the going out of the morning and the evening, the sunrise and the sunset, declare the glory of God. Every time the sun comes up and the sun goes down, it is a praise song by creation unto their God. And it should have all peoples to the end of the earth in awe. Look at a God who does that. Look at a God who brings us light every day so that we can have life on this earth. Brings us night, the end of the day, so that we're not scorched to death. Praise that God. And it is only that God who can control the rising of the sun and the the mountains that sets up our next section here. Verse 8. You visit the earth, or excuse me, verse 9. You visit the earth and water it and greatly enrich it. So we go from the God um, who saves us, who doesn't leave us. He's, He's sovereign over all things. There's nothing and no one outside of his grasp down to the very water that goes to the earth, down to our very crops. Our God cares about the littlest things. Our God cares about every aspect of our lives. And if you're gathering to praise God for the harvest, you praise him for the rain. So this section is the God of supply. He gives the earth and the people all that they need in all seasons, and he gives it in abundance. Now, we're very spoiled in our culture. We have irrigation and we have running water we don't understand how important rain is if you look at this section all this rain imagery we're going to walk through it in a moment but this is so necessary in an agrarian culture if you don't have rain everything's going to die now if you live in florida and we don't have rain for two weeks in the summer everyone's losing their minds because everything's gray it is ugly and we're worrying how we're going to get all of all of our, our plants back imagine every day all year round praying and waiting for rain because you need food. They can't run to the grocery store. Their grocery store is dependent on God bringing rain down. But who sustains it? Look at the same you of salvation is the you of supply. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening with the showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. A lot of great imagery here. Um, but this land, why do they have to pray for rain so often? Well, they were, when we looked at this in Deuteronomy 11. When they were in Egypt, they, had to irrigate, they could irrigate because they were along the Nile. You could just dig out a little trench, pull some water from the Nile, and it was easy. You didn't have to trust God every day. But look what God says about this land, the land that they're in. In Deuteronomy 11, we covered this a couple weeks ago. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. Simple enough. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. It needs a lot of water. A land that that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. God told them, before you go in, you're going to have to rely on me because this land's going to drink water, but I care for it because I care for you and I'm going to continue to provide for it. So last week we saw the water of satisfaction where you find water in a desert. Here, this is praise for water of continued provision. So we see the saving grace of God reconciling his people to himself and the common grace of God to continue reign so that they can have their food in abundance. So this is a well-rounded harvest hymn. The God of salvation, the God of sovereignty, now the God of supply. And rain is a gift from God. 
Rain is, is, is evidence of the grace of God. So verses 9 and 10, here's how this is going to play out. This is the plowing and planting in the fall. This is the early rains. Verse 11, you crown the year with bounty. The entire year is blessed by God. And then verse 12 and 13, these are the latter rains in the spring. This is the great harvest and the rejoicing that comes after the fruit of all the water. They have a rainy season from about October to April. So the early and latter rains that we hear of often are spoken of here. So I want to spend some time, let's break this down a little bit. I think some great imagery here. Uh, verse 9, you visit the earth and water it. This in the Hebrew is uh, abundantly. Like it, it is overflowing. You, you are such a rich and giving God that we have more water than we need. We depend on you, but you give us more than we need. Water by overflowing. You visit us on the earth and you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. Now, uh, we don't know exactly what this is, but there's a, a lot of imagery that God kind of dwells in, in, in the heavens, and from Israel's understanding, there's a river going through heaven. And when they need rain, God's just kind of pushing some water out here or there. The, the river is just, the, the, this river in heaven, this river in the clouds, the, the uh, banks are overflowing. And what they say here is beautiful. The river of God is full of water. Our God is, is a God of riches. There's so much water in the heavens, it's, it's overflowing. So when God gives us water, it's just in the overabundance of what he already has. So it's, it's recognizing the richness of their, their God. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, recognizing that even when our grain grows, it's not because we, we, we dug it up. We could dig it up and we could plant it and we could do everything else, but if you don't water it, it won't grow. We praise you for it. And if you've been in our Deuteronomy study, the struggle is always over water. The struggle is always, do we go after other gods because they are doing rain dances and doing all of these perverse things to their God, hoping that they get water? But here David rightly understands this is the only God who can bring water. This is the only God who can give us what we need. And he does it as a master gardener, for so you have prepared it. He's a master planner and a master gardener. He's prepared all things. He knows exactly what, what they need. It is not outside of his reach. And then he gets into the technicalities of the, the, the farming process. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges. If you don't know what a furrow and, and a ridge is, I didn't either. I had to look them up. Um, when you drag a, a plow through the dirt, the, the furrows are the bottom part. The ridges are the uh, top part. So... If you see one of these fields, they would do this by hand, and they would drag this plow probably with an, with an ox cart or something like that, and you'd have these, these furrows at the bottom and the ridges at the top. And so God waters all that. So they're doing all this process just looking at the sky, like, all right, God, whenever you are ready to do this. But he cares for even the little details of their, their livelihood. He softens it with his showers. The rain of God softens the hardest ground, and it blesses new growth. You water us, and you make all of our efforts bear fruit. Paul plants, Paulus waters, Christ brings the increase, and there's a great parallel to our lives in this. Because in Florida, we feel inconvenienced by, by rain. Oh, it's raining, I don't want to go outside. Rain makes my life a little bit difficult. But it is the rain that softens the ground. It is the rain that, that, that makes us grow. It is the the, the difficulty and, the very, and those annoyances in our lives that, that, that God uses to grow us. And the thing that doesn't seem like it's doing anything at the time is going to sprout growth later on. They don't, they don't see green right away. 
But as the rain comes, they, they, they know that growth is coming. And so as believers, when rain comes, we, we know that, that growth is coming because he's using it for our good. He, but he has to soften our hard soil first. And just how our God works in creation, he works in us. And so he gives the early rains. And you crown the year with your beauty, verse 11. The entire year, God provides in all seasons. You crown it. Kingly language, our king, to the glory of the king, our God, crowns the year with abundance. And then your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. This is an interesting one. Your wagon tracks. So just like there's a river in heaven, um, God has this rain chariot in the sky. Because Hebrews are trying to make a picture of this. And so David speaks of your wagon tracks. So when, when your rain chariot goes by and there's the tracks in the ground, the water that's falling out of the back of it, that's the, that's the rain that we get. Think I'm making that up? I'll look at Psalm 104.3. Uh, Psalm 104.3 gives kind of a picture of this. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Also, in Job 38, Job, I, I love Job 38, kind of begins with God just really leaning into Job. Where were you? Look what I can do. Look at how uh, we see God speaking about water in Job 38. He has cleft a channel for the torrents of, of rain, wagon tracks, and a, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where, there is, where, where no man is, irrigating where only God can. And on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass. The Hebrews are very visual people, and they have to use words that, that they're, they're familiar with to attribute to God. But that's kind of the, the, the picture, your wagon tracks, um, the language is using here. And we take it for granted that this time of year, it rains every day. And it's almost annoying, like, all right, I know I can't do anything from three to four because it could storm out of nowhere at, at, at any time. But imagine being somewhere where you have to depend on that rain every day. And you know that if God does not bless you, if God does not open up the back of, of, of his wagon and his wagon tracks are full of water and overflowing to you, you're going to starve. This is the God who they praise and the God who they, they look to. Uh, verse 12 and 13. So there's a shift from the you to the creation itself. Look at the, the, the language here. The pastures, now it's personifying creation. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. How does God's creation respond to his grace? By being fruitful and growing for his glory. The wilderness overflows. The hills gird themselves. The meadows clothe themselves. The valleys deck themselves. How should we respond to the gifts of God's grace? By growing. By bearing fruit for the sake of his glory. By using what he's giving us. And declaring, look what our gracious God has done. I will shout his praise, just like the earth does. Our growth, our very growth is an act of praise to God. Just like it is in the earth. Every time the earth sprouts forth 
and it, it, it multiplies every time we grow and we multiply in the faith. God is praised. Look what God has done. He has watered this poor, dry ground. He has brought life where there was no, no life. And everything we do in growth in Christ declares his grace. I love how the psalmists make us think about things we don't normally think about. That this God who works on earth to grow things and, and, and bring life where there is no life does it in us. And just how when we see creation, look what God has done. They're to see that in us. Look what our God has done. And if we don't, if we don't declare what, what God has done, Jesus has a remedy for that. I want to close with this, this passage. A couple quick things in conclusion. Luke 19. Luke 19 is Jesus is coming into Jerusalem the final time. And the, the, the scene here is one of praise, like what's going on here. So Luke 19, starting in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They, don't, they did not want Christ to be praised. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry. If we are silent, the very stones will cry out because, because all of nature is, is crying out to God in praise, and so should we. Our God is the God who saves, the God of salvation for all people. Our God is the God who is sovereign over all things. Our God is the God who supplies in all seasons. So just three things to take with you. In the Christian life, we live as redeemed peoples. We praise the God who chooses, who brings us near, who atones and who makes us holy and good in his sight. We live as redeemed peoples. We live in an orderly world. We praise the God who's sovereign over all things and keeps order over the nations. He has power to create and sustains and, and rules over the nations and nature for his glory. And then we live with all we need. Praise him as the God who provides in all seasons in abundance. Praise him, live as redeemed peoples, live in an orderly world, and we live with all we need. Let's pray. Praise you, God. Praise your glorious name. I feel so inadequate to speak on praise because we have not even scratched the surface. But I love how your word challenges us to view you how you are, teaches us how to praise you, our Savior, our sovereign King, our abundant supplier. Lord, help us to look to you for our salvation, for your sovereign rule, for comfort, for peace, for order, but also to supply our every need. Even the little details of your life you pay attention to because you are a God of abundant grace who loves his people, who redeemed us from the, edge, from the ends of the earth to bring us into your temple to make us good and holy in your sight for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.